Hello, and welcome to Resilience, powered by New America and in partnership with our friends at Slate. I'm Anne Marie Slaughter, the CEO of New America. This fall, we released a digital magazine about the topic of resilience. In it, we feature the wisdom and unique perspectives of changemakers, thought leaders, and creatives on how we, as a nation, can bolster the resilience of our society. Please visit the magazine at resilience.newamerica.org to learn more. Ariana Huffington helped to disrupt and reshape the newspaper business as we once knew it when she co-founded the Huffington Post. In its first week online in 2005, HuffPost had postings from Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Larry David, Gary Hart, John Cusack, and Walter Cronkite. A little more than 10 years later, the site had become one of the most visited news sites in the world. At that juncture, Ariana stepped down to devote her time to a new startup of hers called Thrive Global that's focused on health and wellness information. That same year, she published The Sleep Revolution, transforming your life one night at a time. Her book shows how our cultural dismissal of sleep as time wasted compromises our health and decision-making and undermines our work and personal lives. I found Ariana's comments about what makes a resilient, healthy person invaluable. They certainly made me reflect on my own choices and how I can improve for the sake of my overall well-being. Now let's get to my conversation with Ariana. So Ariana, it is, it's such a pleasure to be able to talk to you. And you really are an expert in many ways on resilience. And I wanted to start with your, your personal story. When, when I first knew you, you were going a mile a minute and 24 hours a day, seven days a week running Huffington Post. You really built Huffington Post into a major media force in a very short period of time, and you were also ahead of the media curve. Uh, and I would have said then that you could have handled anything that came at you. I would have said <laughs> she's unstoppable. You'd knock her down, she gets back up, she's got more energy than any human being I've ever seen. Uh, and I would have said that's clearly a resilient person. But then you can talk about, you know, you, you had something happen in 2007 that really changed your outlook on your own life and how other people should live. So talk to us about that. Yes, actually, um, it happened two years into building HuffPost, which I launched in 2005. Right. I was um, the divorced mother of two teenage daughters whom you know, <laughs> and uh, with all that goes with it. Um, and I had bought into the collective delusion that in order to be super mom and super founder, I just had to power through exhaustion and uh, forego sleep, et cetera, et cetera. And one morning, actually it was the morning after I had come back from taking my daughter around uh, schools uh, to decide where she would apply for college, um, I collapsed. I literally hit my head on my desk on the way down, broke my cheekbone. <clears throat> but what was interesting, to your point, that 
um, that you would have thought I had ama amazing energy. If you had asked me that morning, how are you, Ariana? I would have said fine. Right. And it was really the fact that being depleted, running on empty had become the new normal for me. And, yeah. and what is interesting now that we are seeing all around us, um, and I'm so like, I'm, I'm so interested in exploring this theme with you because we look around at, you know, Bernie Sanders um, having a heart attack. We have the tragic news of Bernard Tyson dying in his sleep at 60. Mm. And it's time that we started connecting the dots. You know, I had a painful wake-up call, but it's nothing compared to the casualties that are proliferating all around us. You know, the increase in chronic diseases that are stress-related and preventable, the, the, the increase in mental health problems and suicides. So it's time that we saw that the way we're living and working is not sustainable. It's definitely not resilient. <laughs> and, and we are paying a heavy price, both personally and collectively. So I could not agree more about connecting the dots. And, and indeed, if you look at the economic costs of, of stress and illness and overwork, it's, it's very high. But people just don't connect work and life that way. When you go around as you do now, and you have been now for a number of years, both across the United States and around the world, and you say to people, we need to work less and sleep more. What kind of reactions do you get? Actually, I never say work less. Okay. And I don't work less. I mean, I actually work smarter. Yes, I, don't I agree. Work less. I don't work less hard. If you look at my schedule, you know, it's very intense. I think the difference is including recovery time into ah. an intense schedule. It's a little bit like thinking like athletes. Yes. Now look at athletes. Why is Tom Brady still winning Super Bowls? Because he has prioritized recharging, renewing, and refueling. Yes. And therefore, he, he's able to, to achieve peak performance. So for me, it's a question of how do you achieve peak performance? Let's say you don't care about anything else in your life, you know, your family, <laughs> your, your health even. Peak performance cannot be achieved sustainably uh, if you ignore recovery time. And I think, Anne-Marie, what's important here is to, to look at the new science, which is so absolutely unequivocal on these points. And we claim to be data-driven, but we are not living and working in data-driven ways. We, we are still kind of caught in this kind of Neanderthal, pre-scientific way of thinking that in order to be super successful, uh, we just need to power through no matter what. And I mean, look at uh, all the recent teachable moments we have with what happened with WeWork, yes. what happened with Uber, and how these, these broken cultures are affecting valuations. So even if we were just looking at the financial cost, as you said, uh, the conclusions are clear. So uh, you, you touch on something when you talk about WeWork and Uber and some of these other examples and the culture of 
you know, of working all the time. Indeed, I remember hearing of people who, when they were on a, a transatlantic flight, uh, and they were going from east to west, you could add more hours into a 24-hour day because, of course, you would, you know, leave in, in London and land in San Francisco. And But I, I have heard that described, and I've described it myself, as time macho, right? That it's a yeah. kind of machismo to say, you know, I am indestructible. I can work harder. Than, uh, you know, not, not harder. You're absolutely right. It's not about working hard, and it's not about being productive but I can work longer than you can. Do you think that that's a particularly kind of male culture? Yes, I think it's definitely a male culture. It goes back to the Industrial Revolution, actually, uh, when we started revering machines. Uh And, uh, of course, what we love about machines and what we love about software is what... um, what we we call 99.9% uptime, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> but, but the human operating system is different. And downtime is not a bug, it's a feature. But we're mm. treating it like a bug. Oh, yes. And, and now we need to kind of look at the consequences. It's not just consequences in terms of health, which are obvious, but in terms of decisions, And one of the things we're doing at Thrive, you know, we've built our behavior change product to help people change behaviors through micro steps. But as well as giving people nudges and micro steps every day through the product, we feed them stories of successful people in the arena uh, who are actually doing things differently. Your story, (laughs) Anne-Marie, of watching the birds that I... Um, I hope you can share with us, uh, is part of that. Jeff Bezos' story of why he sleeps for eight hours because it improves his decision-making is part of that. Philip Schindler, who is the chief business officer at Google, he wrote a story of when he realized he could not, he should not be on his phone when he's with his children. Mm. What was his moment of epiphany? All those stories are part of how we are looking to help others change behavior because people want to hear from others in the arena who can almost like give them permission to integrate um, their own rituals for recharging into their lives. So yes. tell us about the watching the birds. <laughs> well, I should say, I you know, I deeply agree with the, the philosophy. And indeed, I, I have thought about interval training and in athletes myself. You know, you go hard, but then you then you rest. And and it's also extremely important for creativity because you need yeah. to let your mind run. And so for me, being in beauty being absorbed in in nature uh, is very very important it 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 recharges me it renews me and the piece that i wrote for thrive is exactly about something as simple as watching the birds at your bird feeder which most people would look out their breakfast window and think oh, okay they're birds and i look at the birds i look at the extraordinary patterns of their feathers their behaviors and it, it it's a world that i can immerse myself in my children laugh at me that, that i care more about my birds and i talk to them but it is a great example of a very small pleasure and moment every day or multiple times a day where I'm not thinking about work, but it 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 is 
integral to my ability to be the person I am, to be the creative that I am, uh, and and to get to do what I do. So I think it's absolutely right. We are not machines. Your point about it being a feature is 100% right. And yet we don't let ourselves take those pleasures. But also, Anne-Marie, as I know, so many of my friends who have children our age and younger are are, um, so worried about what's happening to their children in terms of anxiety and depression and lack of resilience. Absolutely. But I think you've clearly communicated it to your kids because your son, Edward Hoke, is a wonderful contributor to Thrive. And he's so (laughs) ahead of his generation in testing things, in setting boundaries to his relationship with technology. And I feel also for the sake of our children, we need to model these behaviors to give them a way to be in this world, which is changing so fast in, in, a, in a resilient way. Absolutely. So talk a, talk a little more about Thrive and the idea for Thrive. And I, I think it's particularly important that it's Thrive Global which I yeah. find particularly interesting because, of course, you know, you're originally Greek and, you, you know, the Europeans have a very different understanding of how we ought to in, integrate work and life, but so too do the Australians, do the Asians. So just talk a little bit about the idea behind Thrive and, and where you see it going. So Thrive is um, very much focused on behavior change. Uh, We just actually bought an AI um, neuroscience-based company called Boundless to accelerate our roadmap to be able to feed people recommendations for micro steps that are going to be particularly effective for them. And the reason we're focusing on the SaaS product we've launched, which is all about behavior change, is because as um, the CEO of the company we bought, who is now head of behavioral science, as Dalton Combs put it, a hundred years ago, we were dying of infectious diseases. Now it's our behaviors that are killing us. So this is like urgent. So that's our focus. And also in order to be able to scale, We have taken our live workshops and digitized them. So we have six 90-minute digital programs on everything from performance to mental health uh, to the parenthood journey that I know you are so (laughs) involved in in, uh, what you are doing at the foundation. And like next week, for example, we are launching... Thriving Mind, which is our mental health digital program that we we created in partnership with Stanford Medicine, Uh, we're launching it to all Accenture employees around the world, 470,000 employees in 11 languages. The truth, Anne-Marie, is that the problems are the same everywhere. Stress and burnout is affecting all of us. I mean, I came back from Mexico where diabetes and mental health problems are skyrocketing. I was in Brazil last week. We are working there with many companies that are increasingly conscious of the fact that all these issues are not just the province of HR departments. They're really, or should be, directly affecting, you know, the CEO and CFO roadmap. Otherwise, if left unattended, 
they're going to affect business metrics in the bottom line. So for us, that's the priority. We work with 80 companies in 40 countries, but we also announced in Cannes this year in part a partnership with P&G that I'm really excited about, which will allow us to work with the customers of a big brand like P&G around the world to help give them micro steps to improve their lives. Go no, ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you to talk a little bit more about the micro steps piece yes. because I find that fascinating that it's a practice. It's not, it's not a, you know, like suddenly you thrive or suddenly you build resilience. Yes. So talk a little bit more about the, the micro steps piece. No, actually, a practice is a great way of putting it. Basically, as you know, all the latest science shows that um, the most effective way to change behavior is through small daily incremental steps right. that we call micro steps too small to fail. <laughs> Instead of New Year resolutions, which, as we know, uh, fail after two weeks, mm -hmm. uh, we basically break down whatever we want to achieve to easily achievable changes in our lives. Like you want to start exercising, don't tell yourself, I'm going to do an hour in the gym every day. <laughs> True. Uh, I say I'm going today. I'm going to take the steps rather than the elevator. Tomorrow I'm going to walk for two blocks. Whatever. Just break it down in ways that you are not going to fail. And we do that across the board, uh, including our relationship with technology, including sleep, including mental health. And the way this applies to how we work with consumers as opposed to just employees, just to give you an example, is through what neuroscientists call habit stacking. Mm -hmm. Habits stacking. Ah, stacking. habit stacking. Interesting. Adding a healthy habit on top of an existing habit. Hmm. So let's give you an example with PNG, for example. We worked with Pantene because, <laughs> believe it or not, they, they did a study at Yale that showed that most women think they have a bad hair day. In fact, <laughs> yes. the hashtag bad hair day has <laughs> over a million entries. And the, the hashtag good her day when I last checked had about 70,000 entries. So we worked with them to, to practice an affirmation that empowers them while they're washing their hair. We gave, we had, we did an, an experiment with women and uh, gave them like 300 affirmations to choose from. And then after two weeks, we recorded them and the changes they had made in their lives. And it was, Amazing changes simply by repeating an affirmation that made them feel empowered while they were washing their hair. That's habit stacking. As opposed to what happens normally, which is very often our default position, when our brain is not engaged in something, is to go to the negative, to worry about something in the future or ruminate about something in the past. So by directing the brain, to something positive, we begin to change the neural pathways of the brain. That's what's so exciting, Anne-Marie, that something as mundane as <laughs> what are you thinking while you're washing your hair or brushing your teeth can actually affect how um, how you live your day. It, it is just extraordinary. And it is, as you say, it is it's softwired because you can you can change it, but I use an affirmation every morning when I'm doing sort of five minutes of exercise, uh, just little stretches while I'm waiting for my coffee uh, to make. And 
just the experience of breathing in and breathing out and affirming, uh, you know, positively things that, that are, are good about myself, about the world, it, it does make an enormous difference. And I love the idea of doing it when you're washing your hair. <laughs> you're the good <laughs> hair day. Right? So now, uh, now, you know, I'm going to ask you to write about your um, affirmations. I will do that for you. <laughs> I will do that for you. Um, so, but, you know, you also say something that I think is very, important in terms of working with consumers and employers because one of the kind of larger issues here is that the stress that we are encountering is a function of technology, of of life being speeded up, but also of larger changes in our economy and our society so whereby people can't earn a living wage on one job. So they're doing two jobs or three jobs. And some of that, of course, we simply have to address with policy uh, but it's also important that things like work-life balance or, you know, yoga or all of the ways in which very affluent people often manage stress are not limited to a, a tiny a slice of the population that you're actually trying to work with as broad a slice of people as possible, as well as with their bosses to convince people that more is just not better in, in so many cases. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's so important to realize that everything we are saying applies to people from the C-suite to the gig economy to call center operators. And just to give you an example, we are working with call center operators around the world, say with Microsoft. We are working with their operators in Nicaragua, in Vietnam, and the results have been amazing. Because what we've done is we've given them small interventions. You know, they don't have to do a yoga class or meditate or all the things that seem like luxuries. They can just do 60-second recharging pauses in the course of their day. Again, we have the neuroscience that shows that it takes 60 to 90 seconds to course correct from stress. Like that's... That's how long it takes for the cortisol hormone to get through our body. The rest of stress is in our minds. (laughs) Right, right. So what we do is we have these one-minute interventions, which um, ideally through machine learning, we know when you've received a particularly stressful call from an irate client, and the next call is a thrive call that asks you, to take a minute for yourself and remember three things you are grateful for or get up and stretch or or breathe consciously. And what is amazing is how the impact this has. And uh, first of all, the the operators are amazed that anyone cares for them because they feel very disposable. Right. And secondly, it really intervenes so that although, you know, as we know, stress is well, is never anything we're going to eliminate, what happens is it doesn't become cumulative. And that's the key. Right. And that is really, again, the essence of a mindfulness practice is to allow things to to pass by you, to flow over you. And of course, there's going to be a, a reaction, but you determine the the 
degree of the reaction. It's it's also about reasserting agency in it when we oh. feel just completely overwhelmed, which is also deeply uh, necessary for for human beings to have that sense of even micro control uh, in a world that that we can't control the, where we can't control the larger forces. And actually, that's in the end what resilience means. You yes. know, we can, <laughs> to you know to be able to be to transcend our circumstances, um, no matter what these are. And that in no way, you know, obviates, of course, the need for policy changes or changes at the employer level. But, you know, we have examples from history <clears throat> of people who are able to, to tap into their own center of peace and wisdom, you know, the eye of the hurricane, if right. you want, in the middle of the most extreme circumstances, you know, Viktor Frankl in a concentration camp. So we have like extreme cases that that show that that is available to us as individuals. And, uh, and how can we create these micro steps during our day that are like reminders that we all have that eye of the hurricane in us? Well, that is a lovely note on which to end. I think uh, the idea of resilience as, as being a, the eye of a hurricane deep within us that we can access uh, even in the very worst circumstances, uh, as you point out, uh, and that learning how to access uh, that, that well of resilience is, is the key to, to learning how to thrive. So, Ariana Huffington, I... I loved our conversation and I'm so glad we could have it. Me too. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie, for everything you're doing. <laughs> well, we'll go forward together. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Resilience, powered by New America and in partnership with our friends at Slate. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit our online magazine at resilience.newamerica.org to access my other interviews.